Well, uh, my dad joke game is elevated to a whole new level uh, since I became a grandfather. I think uh, I'm really proud of, of the way I've, done, I've uh, just matured in this area of life. Um, and I want you to help me because you've probably heard this one before, but I want to start with this. Why did the scarecrow get a promotion? Because he was outstanding in his field. That's good. That's good. Now, uh, this is the greatest scarecrow of all time. Uh, yeah, so uh, you're, you're welcome. That's uh, a gift for you. And uh, we're going to talk about the greatest of all time. Who, those who are outstanding in their field. That's a good segue, right? Good to talk about the greatest. See, you, you don't get that as a dad. You only get that as a grandpa. All right. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rattle some names and, and uh, just to kind of bring us into what this conversation is about as we launch this series called Greater Than, uh, this exposition of uh, the book of Colossians, this letter that Paul wrote. Um, but I'm gonna, let's go through this. So we have Muhammad Ali. What, what was Muhammad Ali famous for saying? I am the greatest, right? He floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. What about Wayne Gretzky? What did we call Wayne Gretzky? The great one, greatest hockey players of all time. Now let's start a, let's start a debate or a war. Okay, tell me who is the goat of the NBA? Uh, I think that was Toby yelling, Toby. So, very focused on himself. So, there's like, uh, depending on who, there's a three-way argument about this. And uh, it's really sad when people just can't see Michael Jordan for who he was as the GOAT. But, uh, and then there's one that's like, like him or not, he's one of the most likable guys in all of sports. And that makes a lot of people not like him. Uh, it's Tom Brady. Statistically, he's the GOAT of quarterbacks in the NFL. Uh, and then here's one. This one is uh, widely, widely debated, widely contested. Earl Anthony. Don't, don't argue with me. I'm telling you, Earl Anthony is the greatest professional sports man of all time. He has 43 career titles. And 10 major championships. Earl Anthony. The greatest of the professional bowlers association. <laughs> Earl Anthony is the greatest in his field. He's pretty outstanding. Now, Earl Anthony, I grew up knowing who Earl Anthony was. I was part of a bowling league as a kid. And uh, I would go in a bowl and my bowling team with my friends and my parents were friends with their parents and they would drink bowl uh, at the bowling alley uh, while we would bowl or we'd play video games. I spent a lot of time in, 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 you know, nine to about 13 years old at the bowling alley. And uh, we, they had this tournament called the I Beat Earl Anthony Tournament. And it was pretty cool. It was only for junior bowlers, but for some reason I don't know, and it probably had to do with uh, the in the 70s and 80s, this combination of alcohol and bowling uh, just seemed to be a thing. Uh, and you could smoke indoors, and they did at bowling alleys a uh, lot. And so I think because of the alcohol related, maybe that's my speculation, but it's uh, informed. Uh, 
he bowled a 99. And, and if you know bowling scores, that's really bad. Like the perfect score is 300. Earl Anthony's average was like a 275 or four or something like that, like, which is amazing to average as a bowler. But for some reason, on his record, he had a score of 99. And so they did this tournament for junior bowlers that if you got more than a 99, you won a patch that said, I beat Earl Anthony, right? So I can proudly say that I did beat Earl Anthony. I beat the GOAT. I beat the greatest of all time. And uh, now asserting that Earl Anthony is the greatest bowler of all time will not get much debate because not many people care (laughs) or know who Earl Anthony is. Even if you escalate that up and say, well, let's see, NBA is more common. Uh, Let's debate that. You'll get more people debating louder, but there's still a huge majority of people in the world that just won't care. Uh, Muhammad Ali, many people won't care. Tom Brady, like they have their lanes of importance, their fields that uh, people care who is the goat, but asserting that anyone is the goat won't bring much attention or uh, real life change, right? Doesn't, it doesn't empower or encourage anyone to believe that one person is the greatest or not. But, but Paul, in this letter that he and Timothy are writing to this small church in this small town, uh, he feels compelled to assert this conviction that Jesus is the greatest, that he's preeminent. And so it makes you question what was happening in that time, in that space, and who was Paul and who were these people for him to write this letter to them for this purpose in this time? And why is it of the utmost importance that this letter has been preserved for thousands of years and been canonized as scripture? Well, it turns out Uh, The eternal destination of all living things that have ever existed and ever will, it's a pretty big deal. (laughs) And at the foundation of this is this assertion that Jesus is God. So we're going to explore that today as we look at the first chapter of the book of Colossians. I hope you got a scripture journal on the way in. I know we ran out, so we'll be ordering more. if you got one of these, we, we want you to fall in love with scripture. We want you to follow along and, and we want to grow together in the same direction as a church family. And so we encourage you to uh, get one of these and, and you can write your notes in one side. You can read along, you can write in it. We do these for all the books of the Bible that we do. So you probably have a collection by now if you've been with us for a while. Um, but we also printed up a book bookmark for you. Uh, with that, and on the back, it's got the, uh, your weekly Bible reading focus for each week so you can be in line with the sermon that we're teaching that week. And the way we've broken up Colossians over four weeks is slightly different than just the chapters. Um, so you can follow along that way and read. And then there's study guide questions we're posting to our Church Center app. So hopefully you can log in and get the Church Center app so you can get some questions to help you go deeper. And uh, I'll be uh, just talking about some of those questions, uh, letting you know what what they are along the way as we go through this. The main point of this letter from Paul is that Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is God. But he's not trying to equip them on how to win a debate or how to prove that their side is better. He's trying to encourage them so they can continue in faithfulness. 
And for some reason, he asserts that this is the thing at its core that we hold on to as our reason for hope, for faithfulness, that Jesus is the greatest. Now, this the spiritual landscape of where this, who this was written to in around 60 AD, that spiritual landscape was crowded. Uh, there are many different belief systems competing with one another. Uh, for example, in this polytheistic, deistic space, let me, let me put it this way. In this world, in this town in Colossae, and, and all the towns in the area, which is about modern-day Turkey about now, and, and uh, the, in any given city there lived the, the beliefs of many of these that kind of were different flavors or versions of we live in the city with some gods. And our job is to appease the gods, to do these rituals, to do these sacrifices so the gods don't get angry at us. And, and any time there was at something they couldn't explain, uh, an earthquake or floods or, or drought or anything, they attributed that negative thing to the fact that the gods were angry and uh, it was because of something the humans did or didn't do. And so all of these different competing belief systems had this uh, this conviction that, that when something bad happened, they had to blame somebody. They had to blame a certain group of people. Well, then enter Christianity. Christianity comes in and says, uh, there is one God, and he's a God of love and grace and mercy. And the earthquake, therefore, earthquakes are caused by gods. And uh, there's something else going on here. And if you think about it in that context, you realize that Christianity becomes the one belief system, the one religion that is causing all of these earthquakes and famine and conflict because they're not doing the thing. And in that context, you can see how they could be the butt of persecution. They could be the target of blame. And it was only two years after this letter was written that we had the fire, the, the fire in Rome. And this is so well historically documented that we know the exact date is July 18th in 64 AD, the catastrophic, catastrophic fire in Rome that Nero, the emperor at the time, blamed the Christians for. And now you know why, how he was able to make that blame stick with the Christians because they weren't appeasing any of the gods. So you, you see how the Christianity in itself stood in conflict. That is the context of that then. Now, let's think about how that pulls forward to now. When we stand in faith in a world that's full of fear and doom and division, and we say, I stand for love and kindness and peace. I, I elevate being kind to my neighbor over then over convincing someone in my political stance. I choose to have hope in the face of fear and it doesn't get me down. I don't agree with you that the thing that's freaking you out should freak me out. And why? Why do we have that ability to stand strong and not give in to the pulling of the politics, the pulling of the fear, the pulling of the culture that's trying to get us to put our hope in something temporary and weak just to win an argument? The only reason we find actual peace and actual hope in the person of Jesus Christ is because Jesus is God. Because if we just believe in Jesus and the philosophy of Christianity, or maybe it's the culture of Christianity that we grew up in that we want to be a part of, or maybe it's an identity we feel like we've inherited from our parents and our grandparents that we are Christians and that this is what we do. Those are so empty and vain because none of them are anchored in this truth that Jesus is God and, and you believe it. It's the, it's the difference between um, being committed to 
something or being committed to commitment, right? Some, think about it in the context of relationships. You can be committed to commitment. And if you're one of these people that just says, I'm committed to being committed, without any thought of the person or what you're committing to, that's where you end up in a dysfunctional, sometimes abusive, manipulative relationship, and you feel stuck. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone in a, in a toxic relationship say, this is my lot in life because I'm committed. Well, what are you committed to? Are you committed to commitment? That's empty. That's vain. And Paul is saying, I'm not just telling you to stay committed because you said you would. He's saying stay committed because the one you're committed to is God. Like the, the, the source of your commitment has a foundation that can stand. This is the foundation of Christianity. This is the way when someone wants to debate and argue our faith, they attack that Jesus didn't really say he was God or Jesus wasn't God. Because if that's gone, then all we have is another philosophy of a historical figure that is completely rooted in history. And there's no and nothing further. No explanation of miracles, no explanation of, of any of the supernatural things that we know happened, but just an f- empty philosophy of a savior. Like if you think about it, someone could have the same framework and say, hey, this guy, he lived a great life and he taught really good things and he died for my sins. Well, who was he? His name was Eric, the son of Bob and Sue. Or Oh, he was God. (laughs) Now that is a foundation that we can draw hope from. That is a foundation that we can grow from. There's two things about Paul's assertion that I want to pull out and make clear here as we get into this. And then we're going to read this uh, first part of the chapter together. And just follow Paul's thought process. He's writing to Christians. Keep that in mind. Paul is writing this letter to Christians in Colossae, he's not writing this to a newspaper article. He's not writing this to non-believers. He's trying to encourage Christians. Uh, that is his, uh, his audience and his purpose is so that they would be faithful and stand strong. So that's his audience. That's his purpose. Christians who, uh, who he wants to encourage to stand strong. And the second thing is he's inspiring them by reminding them of the person of Jesus. So those are the two things that, that Paul is asserting here that I think we can learn from. Uh, and we'll, we'll unpack that as we go. The interesting thing is Paul is writing this letter from prison and he's in prison for declaring the very thing that he keeps writing in these letters that he's sending. So like, if the idea of prison is to reform you, it's not working with Paul. Like he's in there because he's declared that Jesus is God and that threatens the fabric of society. And he's writing letters to people all over saying Jesus is God. And that's awesome. That's, that's, that's a beautiful conviction here. Okay. In this, uh, we're going to read this together and just kind of walk through. Keep in mind, as we read this together, that This is in the genre of letter written from a person to a person in a time, in a season, because of a reason and trying to address an issue that isn't 2021 in Willamette Valley 
or you or me or Village Church or any of it. However, there are universal truths that we can, we can pull from and say, what, did, what was the heart and spirit behind this? And what does it say about us and who God is? And, and there's a reason why of all the ancient writings that this was canonized by our spiritual forefathers to say, this represents a truth that needs to be preserved for generations. So we have the book of Colossians. Let's go through this. All right. Get your scripture journal and we're going to go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our father. Now we read that and go, yeah, yeah, skip that. Where's the good stuff? But let me pull out a few things here. So who's writing this? Paul, who is Paul? Paul's an apostle. What is an apostle? Um, and it's important that we do this, right? Because human tendency is when we read a story that we're trying to find some timeless truth in, we, fi- we try to figure out where am I in this story? Where do I fit in this story, right? So let's think that through. Um, so Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Are you an apostle? What's an apostle? Apostle is defined very strictly in the New Testament. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, Acts 9. Acts 2, 2 Corinthians 12, an apostle is defined as someone who is an eyewitness to Jesus, the body of Jesus, the person of Jesus, Um, someone who's chosen by the Holy Spirit, and someone who ministers with, or has ministered with miraculous signs and wonders. So I would say, uh, I do not fit that. I am not an apostle. And so it's safe to say, uh, I, I don't think any of you are. And if you are, let me know. I'd love to read your writings and get to know you. Uh, so who else is mentioned in here? Timothy. I'm not Timothy. Um, and so to the saints and faithful brothers, I would say that's me. Who are the saints? What's a saint? What, do we look at the saints the same as apostles? No, if you look at scripture, saint is a word that is or a title that is ascribed to anyone who has fully devoted their life to Jesus Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus, congratulations, you're a saint. You have, you have achieved sainthood not by anything you have done, but by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in the resurrection. And by believing in that, we become transformed from people of this world to people of God's kingdom. And that means that we are saints. So you can update your business card and resume to say saint, Uh, ascribed by God, imparted by Jesus, Uh, you are a saint. So that's who we are. So this letter, in a way, could address some of the things that we deal with from someone who has been there, done that, seen him, and been anointed by the Holy Spirit. So there's authority there for believers. Verse 3 says, We always thank God the Father for our, of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. I love the connection of thankfulness and prayer. Um, if I ever cultivate a heart of gratitude, as I do that in my life for um, people and ministries and, and my family, and it comes out of me in prayer and worship. I don't know. It just does. Cultivating a heart of thankfulness. And, and it happens with relationships. When someone does something for us and we're just grateful, we say thank you. Like those things are connected, prayer and thankfulness. And it's the same with Paul. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and for the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So it was the hope laid up for them them in heaven that gave them that heart 
uh, to, or that conviction and that heart to have faith and love for all the saints. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Let's pause there for a second. Like the the power of the gospel is transforming the world. It still is today. We live in a world full of of, uh, just all these reasons that we can cling on to to not have hope. We may be going through a season of struggle where we just can't see hope, but we, we know that because Jesus is God, when we lean in him and trust in him and believe in him, we see Jesus in everything, so we see a reason for hope in everything. And this is what was happening in Colossae. They were amidst persecution, and he's calling out this encouragement, like maintain and continue in this hope. And your key to doing that is this foundational truth that Jesus is God. Verse seven, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. So Epaphras is the guy who started the church in Colossae. Paul didn't start this church. And then Epaphras comes and gives Paul a report and says, here's what's going on. Here's what they're struggling with. And boy, are we proud of them. They're doing such a good job. It was so encouraging. And so he, he, this letter comes back to address the issues and to continue the encouragement. Verse 9. And so from the day we heard, heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit and every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing. As you continue in bearing good fruit, as you continue in believing, as you continue in fellowship and faithfulness, your, your understanding, your convictions, your knowledge increases. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, look at that. We are qualified to share in the inheritance. You're qualified. You're qualified. That is so empowering, isn't it? We, we all struggle with this self-doubt, this fear, am I good enough? Uh, I've studied this, during this pandemic, I've studied a lot about human nature and, and the way we psychologically, emotionally, uh, spiritually, internally, we, we react to things. And, and one of the things that seems to be universally true is that we all feel this element of imposter syndrome, this element of someone's going to find out that I'm not worthy of doing this thing. Or someone's going to find out that, that I sin and that I'm not good enough. Someone's going to find out that I'm faking it. And someone's going to find out. And, and let me tell you, no one's coming. No one's monitoring you and no one's going to, that should give you some peace, right? No one's coming. No one's looking at how you spend your days and going up. Oh, you spent four minutes too long in bed this morning. And I know you just took the toothpaste and went like this and you didn't brush your teeth for two minutes. <laughs> two minutes, the dentist says. How many, how many of you like have anxiety if you don't brush for two minutes? Like, and then 
And then I, this added anxiety. Do you have anxiety if you leave the water running while you brush your teeth? Yeah. Like, thanks for that. Al Gore. Anyway. My Gen X audience, thank you. Uh, this imposter syndrome is something that can cripple us, but no one's coming. Uh, if we have this, this foundation of faith that we are qualified, that, that because of Jesus, you are enough. And I remember uh, uh, as, I, as I started to get into regularly preaching every week, I, I, I take this very seriously and I feel a weight, a burden on it. And I study hard and I collaborate with people and I, uh, I just put a lot of energy into it, but there's always this feeling of uh, I'm missing something. Something's not enough. It's not, it's not going to connect. I'm not accurate enough. I'm not precise enough. And if you ever hear me in my sermons, I rabbit trail down something. I kind of get too specific. It's usually because of one of those little fear things that happened throughout the week. And I found out something amazing. Just like I just did just now, we're in it. <laughs> come out. Come out of it. Believe Jesus is God, right? Uh, but believing that Jesus is God and believing that we have been chosen by him and redeemed by him and restored by him means that we are qualified. You're good enough. One of my mentors said to me about preaching, he said, uh, the gifting of God and your effort to show up is all that's needed. And I just rest in that. My obedience to show up sometimes is all I can muster. And I just trust in the Holy Spirit in the moment. Not a good, uh, I don't recommend that as a life strategy, but those moments where doubt is there, it's, uh, it's really beautiful. So you are qualified. Don't forget. Um, the, the Greek word in that is, uh, of qualified is hikanah. Uh, Hikanao, it means to make sufficient, to render fit, to equip with adequate power. Yeah, you're qualified. You're qualified. Congratulations. Now, uh, in verse 15, verse 15 through 20 is actually a poem that Paul wrote. That, uh, we're going to read it as that. So think about this letter, and then Paul inserts this beautiful imagery. And, and this poem, for further study, I encourage you to do this. Uh, take, go ahead and just Google it and find it. If you lo- use uh, Logos Bible software, there's a whole section that exposits this, and it's so empowering. But, but he, he's pulling imagery from the book of Genesis, uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, and one of the minor prophets, I forget which one, but he's pulling from all four of these sources and putting them together to weave this beautiful story in just five verses. So it's the, the, the cadence is lost in English, but uh, I guess it was there. So let's just read this through as, that, as the next five verses. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What a great, just, compact, powerful passage. That's worthy of study and prayer and reflection. Verse 21, he says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So he's pulling back to that poem, and he's drawing this contrast. He goes, there's the kingdom, and then there's the dominion of the world. They're at conflict. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God are at conflict. And he's reminding them that because Jesus is God and you believe in him, you've been qualified by him, you are now, remember, you are now part of the kingdom of God. You have a new kingdom, a new life, a new purpose, a new source, and it means everything because and only because Jesus is God. So he says, you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. These are the descriptions of you that make you qualified. Now, I don't walk around every day thinking that I am holy and blameless, stable and steadfast, When we walk around this life, we, we feel threatened, things that threaten that foundation. But I will encourage you, when you find yourself threatened by the world, when you find yourself given to temptation, when you find yourself falling into sin, just remember that at the core of why we sin, it's a belief issue. Because in the moment, we're forgetting who we are. And we do that. And we have, that's why the foundation of our relationship with God is that we are forgiven. God will forgive us and write his word on our hearts, it says in Jeremiah. That is the definition of what it means to be God's people. We're forgiven. And then we have that, his word in our heart that convicts us when we're forgiven so we can repent and be restored. You are always a two-second prayer away from being restored to righteousness with God. And the only way you will feel that and live in that is if you believe that Jesus is God. You can believe that somebody died and was resurrected, but if that person that died and was resurrected isn't God, your belief has no power. Because the power comes from this truth that Jesus is God. If indeed you continue in the faith, this is, this is the last passage we're going to look at today. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. If you believe, whoa, if you believe and remain steadfast. And so, I can promise you, because that brings up a whole debate, I'm pretty confident that when Paul wrote this, he wasn't bringing up a point to argue Calvinism versus Arminianism. 
Because you could read that and say, well, I could lose my salvation when I don't believe. Remember, Paul's purpose is to encourage them to stay steadfast so they can be faithful as qualified people to enjoy the peace and the hope that comes from believing in Jesus as God. So clearly he wouldn't just shift this to be a philosophy debate because that was not what he was. So what is he saying here? He's saying that you miss out. You don't feel the courage and the peace when we stray. When you don't believe. It, it, if you put it in that context, it helps. Uh, I don't know if you've, you've read this, but there's a passage where this man says to Jesus, uh, I believe, help my unbelief. Like you have this deep thing that you uh, are banking your life on. The, the idea, I talked last week about pistis, that thing that you believe in, the thing you put your weight on, the thing you trust in is what believe is. So if you put your trust in something, and then when we fall, it's when we put our trust in something that isn't God. So we put our trust in God. And when we sin, it's because we're putting our trust in something that isn't God. And, it, and we fall. But as we pray, repent, and, for, and are forgiven, we are restored to righteousness. And that only happens not because the philosophy makes sense. It's because Jesus is God. I just love how of all the things that Paul could say to a church in, in a, a culture of crisis and conflict and differing opinions and differing beliefs and all these isms. Pastor Ben calls it an ism salad. <laughs> I love that. It's like all these isms and people believing things. And it, it, the thing that he says is the first thing I want to lead with is Jesus is God. And that makes him the greatest. Not so they can be equipped to win the debate in the streets, but so they can be equipped to remain faithful, to share the love that comes out of your heart when you believe that Jesus is your God. It just happens. So if I had to boil this whole thing down on what is Paul trying to say right here in this section, is Jesus is greater because Jesus is God. And if you truly believe that, you will find that you, when you look at the world, when you look at other people, when you look at yourself, you see Jesus. And when the love of Jesus inside of you sees Jesus in other people, you will act in love towards them. And yeah, we forget yeah, we, we disbelieve, which is, I believe, what sin is. It's a moment of disbelief. There is a, a awareness being raised in our culture right now of a very natural human process in our faith. 
a very natural human process that we have, that all generations have, and it typically comes at the, at the age of kind of becoming an adult, late teens, early 20s. You enter into this, this thing where you start to question everything that was given to you from the previous generation, and you have to make it your own. At some point, you realize, even if you're a Christian raised in the church, that um, my belief in my parents' belief isn't gonna be enough to get me through this world. That's called deconstruct, excuse me, deconstruction. The idea that we take the, the foundations that we've been given and we challenge them and question them. And I think that is so healthy and so good and we have to do it. And I, and I would put to you that the very first deconstruction that we see in scripture is really in Deuteronomy uh, in where uh, Moses gives the next generation a retelling, a second telling of the hope of going into the promised land. And you'll notice the first generation that set out for the promised land from this, this foundation given to them by this experience with Moses, with God on the mountain, none of that generation entered the promised land and the, the generation didn't enter the promised land until they got a Deuteronomy, which means second telling. Moses gave them a second telling of the mission and the purpose of God and why to go to the promised land. And their generation owned that and went in. And I think that is just emblematic of the way we need our generations to deconstruct and own and take ownership of faith and practice and church. But let me encourage you, as you deconstruct, don't assume that your wrestling inside of you is strong enough to destroy what's been laid down for thousands of years as a pillar, as a foundation. And at the core of that thing I wanna encourage you not to destroy is this idea that Jesus is God. Explore. I firmly believe that if anyone is honestly, without agenda, without fear, honestly pursuing truth, existential truth, you will end up at the feet of Jesus, the Son of God, who came to take away our sins. To restore us to righteousness that qualifies us to be faithful, to love, to serve, to preach, to teach, to sacrifice, to to do all the things that God has put in each of us uniquely to do for the sake of sharing his love with the world. You're qualified because of Jesus. And of all the things that you put your faith in, put your faith in this truth, that Jesus is the greatest thing you can put your faith in because Jesus is God. I truly, truly believe that. I'm going to ask the band to come back up as we uh, enter into a time of worship. And I want, I want to encourage you to direct your heart to a heart of thanksgiving, that you are a child of God, that you are qualified, that you are equipped, that you are empowered, that you are part of a church that is adamantly pursuing the reality that none of us are alone that we depend on one another, we need each other, that we engage with each other in relationships so, so gifts can be shared. And when we cultivate that heart of thanksgiving, you'll find you'll wanna do something with it. Express thanks to God and to the people in your life that, uh, that encourage you in God. 
We're all blessed with those people in our life that are a constant source of encouragement and reminding us of, of who God is and these truths that, that uh, there is reason for hope, there is reason for faith, there is reason to go against the kingdom of the world. When you direct your heart that way, you will find that thanksgiving and prayer and worship just come out. They have to. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this reminder, this foundational truth reminder that that Paul and Timothy just assert this truth to the church in Colossae, that we can grab onto that truth and just own it as ours because we are saints, we are God's people. We can own that Jesus is God and that is our foundation of faith. Help us to see that, believe that, and help us to see Jesus in everything. The the one that we love, the one that loves us more tenderly and intimately than we've ever been loved is also inside of the person who's really frustrating us right now or the person who's offended us or hurt us. He's inside of the person that disagrees with us politically that disagrees with us in practice. So God, let us be your agents of love and kindness and let us change the world through the power of your love, not through the power of any cunning philosophy. And I thank you that we can trust in you, that you yourself hold the power to bring your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Let us live that. Let us participate with you to live out your love in this world around us to bring your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Let us be that person that brings your kingdom of hope where there's hopelessness into the life of someone who's facing hopelessness. Let us bring that kingdom of there is courage and power to overcome the temptation, to overcome the sin and the person that's feeling attacked and lost. Let us be the source that says your kingdom of God. Uh, let it be so in this situation on earth let us be your conduits of bringing your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven in jesus name amen